All right. Hey, for a nearly a hundred years, a beautiful mural uh, of Jesus had been seen with great pride in the sanctuary of Mercy Church in Bora, Spain. Now, uh, the, the painting titled Behold the Man, it was a style of painting which refers to an artistic style, a motive uh, that depicts Jesus usually kind of bound and tied up before he was completely crucified. All right, so he, he's tied, he's bound, the, uh, usually in this style of painting. The crown of thorns is already placed on his head, and it's right before his crucifixion. Uh, the painting by this man, Elias Garcia Martinez, was done in the 1930s, and it was done with oil paint directly onto the church wall. Here's uh, what it originally looked like. Okay, right on the church wall. Right? This one, he has the crown of thorns, he's suffering. Right? It's a beautiful and a moving piece of artwork, right? right? Well, over over the years, as often happens with murals, the art started to fade and found itself in a different state, looking more like this. Okay? Kind of kind of fading, kind of kind of chipping a little bit. Not so good, right? And so after, after decades of moisture buildup, the painting had started to, to go into ruins, and the colors had started to fade. In fact, unless you saw it in the church, you, you may not know that you were looking, or supposed to be looking, at the depiction of a suffering Jesus. So in August 2012, the idea for restoration came up and it went into play. The church decided, hey, let's restore some of these things, including this painting. And what follows is what the New York Times said was probably the worst art restoration project of all time. That's how it was described by the New York Times. Now, a Spanish blog called it the restoration turned into destruction. And my personal favorite review in a BBC article said this. It said the delicate brushstrokes by Elias Garcia Martinez had been buried under haphazard splattering of paint. The once dignified portrait of Jesus now resembles a Koran sketch of a very hairy monkey, an ill-fitting tunic. Now let me, let me show you the restoration. Here's the picture. Do we have it? That's what they restored it to. Go back to the original. Okay, and then it went to, all right. You see, when the, the church decided to do a restoration project, a sweet woman by the name of Cecilia from the church volunteered her services. Oh, sweet Cecilia. She would later be quoted as saying, we've always fixed everything ourselves around this church. We saw everything was falling down, and we decided to fix it, to restore it. Again, oh, sweet Cecilia, everything may have been falling down, but you definitely did not fix the painting, did she? And she most, act, you know, most assuredly did not restore the painting. Right? I believe that the original artist could have walked into the building and not even recognized his original artwork hanging there, you know, painted on the wall. Now, this, of course, is kind of a funny story, Foundry Church, or maybe a sad story if you are an art lover. Uh, but I think, uh, above all, that it's a story 
that has a good reminder. It's this. Some projects in life are not good projects for amateurs. Right? I mean, that's just a true statement. Some projects in life are just not good projects for amateurs. Some things in life, they they need fixing or they need restoration or healing or they might even need a cure. Well, they're just not good things for us to fix ourselves. And just think about it. Objects like art or old houses or or old cars, they, they lose their luster and even fall apart. And people, they try to restore them. But only the professionals can do the real thing. Now, we're just being honest. Right? We, we know that this because there's a show on, uh, on HGTV or Megolia Network or like Discovery or some, one of those channels. And, and it's a show called Homes by Homes. Right? Or, or that's, that's Homes with an L. Right? On Homes. Right? So Homes is the man's name. And he's working on homes. And the whole premise of this show is that people have tried to fix their homes on their own. Right? Maybe, hey, let's put in a new kitchen and we're going to do it ourselves. I know I even own a hammer. I don't know what a hammer looks like, but we're going to put in a new kitchen. Right? Or a new bathroom. Or we're going to finish the unfinished basement. Or we're going to build the porch off the back of their homes. And the, the homeowners will start these projects thinking this will be no problem. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy, easy, right? We're going to do this project, but believe me, it is always a problem, right? If you watch, you know these kind of shows, right? You've seen these on TV. So like poor Cecilia, when she tried to restore that painting of Jesus, it always amazes me how messed up these houses can get. I mean, these amateurs will come in and instead of putting a new porch on the back of their house, they'll be left with a hole in their house, covered with, like, janky Amazon cardboard from a purchase, right? Uh, there's a sinkhole in their backyard now. And for some reason, now they need a new roof, right? And then this Holmes guy, the, the Holmes with an L, right? Holmes guy, he comes in, and he'll look at all the screw-ups, and he'll look at these people and how they try to fix the house, and he'll not just get the homes to how they were before they tried to fix their own house, no, he, he goes in and he restores the home with the correct upgrades and fixes. You see, look, again, some projects in life are not good projects for amateurs. Right? That guy knows that, so he's made a living off of that. And I think people, uh, we're no different. Over time, listen, Foundry Church, over time, left to our own devices, we can find ourselves feeling like a home that has holes in the foundation or we're, we're crackling and our paint is chipping and we are in serious need of a new roof. You know what I mean? You guys tracking with that? I don't think I, I have to look far uh, to find people who feel like they're barely hanging on. They're in the middle of a DIY disaster. They're falling apart. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you just have, have, you've seen better days. Let's be honest, let's welcome authenticity. We've all been there. Many of us are there right now. We walk through this fallen world and things are not always great. Believer or unbeliever, wealthy or, or poor, young or old, few if any remain exempt from the wear and the tear of the world that we live in. It's just the way it is. 
Right? For some, a father in their life talked a big game, but was just not around. Right? And now for, for others, a, a trusted friend pulled away from you in an hour of need, and you've never felt such loneliness. For others, we thought we had this whole adulthood thing figured out, and then came the sickness, or the diagnosis, the joblessness, or just the plain old unhappiness that creeps in. And every time we try to fix what ails us, things just seem to go deeper and deeper and deeper into disarray. And we come to church and we hear about God and we're crying out to God and we may not verbalize it this way, but we're, we're saying things like this. We need restoration and we need healing. We need a cure. Now, we may not even be able to verbalize it like that, though, because it's just such despair. Our roof's falling in, and for some reason, we decided to build a deck, but now the garage fell down. Who knows? Just confusion. And that is the onion that I want to peel today, and we're not just going to peel it. We're going to make onion rings with it. <laughs> the onion of people uh, who feel like amateurs in life trying to provide restoration and healing for ourselves. And because of that, because we're doing it ourselves, it feels like nothing is working. I, I think we can find the answer in another name of God. We're in this series looking at the different names of God. And really, it's a highlight of his character, of who he is, of the God that we're forging our life on. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus. All right, this is where we're going to be today, Exodus is the second book of the Old Testament. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 14, uh, the second book of the Bible. So right at the beginning, turn there. 14, the big 14 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, please use the Bibles that are in the seats in front of you. And you can take those Bibles with you. They're for you to have, to use, to take, to use. Um, so be, we're, turn there. Go ahead. Turn to Exodus 14. That's where we're going to be in just a minute. Now, the book of Exodus is called that because it tells the story of the exodus, the leaving of the people, uh, the Israelites out of Egypt, the chosen people of God from Egypt. It was their exodus story. They were like, peace out, and they exited right, the situation. A little different spelling, but that's basically the principle of the book of Exodus. The book begins with God calling Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, only there's one problem, and we know this, right? They were slaves of the kingdom, and Moses must get the Pharaoh of the time to let the people go. So after a series of miracles and a series of plagues on the people of Egypt, Pharaoh finally lets the people of Israel go. He just lets them go. All his, all his slaves go. And then literally immediately, right, like some of your kids, right? right literally immediately, he changed his mind, and he's like, I got to get my people back. I got to get these slaves back. Pharaoh changes his mind, and he wants them back, so he sends his army after them, and they're only just a, like a days away, right? And that's where we're going to pick up the story. So turn there in Exodus 14, and we're going to look at verse 26. That's just a little 26 there. All right. Verse 26 says this, then the Lord said to Moses, right, so they're, they're cornered, they're at the Red Sea, the, Pharaoh changed his mind, he's coming after them, and then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, 
that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The water turned, returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. None of them remained. Right, verse 29 says, But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them to their right and, uh, uh, to their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. All right, keep it open right there. Now, wouldn't you love to be there? I, I would, right? All right, walking across a sea on dry land. Right? They're, they're cornered. They think all hope is lost. And all of a sudden, right, God splits the sea. You walk across, and then, and then God tells Moses to, to raise his hand out over the sea and to bring the, the walls crashing down, all the ocean around all those uh, that are chasing you. Man, I would have loved to have been there. Right to your left and to your right is a wall of water as you walk through. The, the literal hands of, of God are holding back the waves and the animals of the sea. And then he just doesn't leave it there. He uses the same walls of water that he held back to destroy those enemies. Now, that's a, just a powerful image. So it's no wonder that this event holds a prime position in the history of God's people as a symbol of God's salvation. Right? And that's why we did the, the Seder meal over over Holy Week, the week of Holy Week here at the Foundry. Because it's a reminder to the Israelites, to the, the Jewish people, of what God did for them. And now it's a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. Isaiah the prophet, he later wrote this in Isaiah 51 about this event. He said, was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over Right? Those the, the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with, with singing, it says. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sign will flee away. Right? The Israelites had seen a very clear example of God's great power. The God that they forged their life on was on display. The Israelites had seen a clear example of it. They had seen the God that they forged their life on rescue them. Think about that. To restore their freedom, heal the pain of slavery, and as a result, it says, the people feared the Lord and believed in him, and what did it say? And his servant Moses. Now, if we read on in Exodus, it says that they uh, reached the other shore. The Israelites, they, they got there, and they sang a song of celebration, praising God for his deliverance, for his power, praising him because he was the was, was and is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. 
just like we talked about last week. Now listen, the song not only celebrated their present victory over Pharaoh in Egypt, the song that they composed to celebrate this event, but it also looked forward to the victorious conquest and to the settlement of the promised land that God had given them. The song was a real top-of-the-chart type of hit, right? Things were going great for the Israelites, but we know how quickly things change, don't we? All right, let's let just look on. Look at, look at 15, chapter 15, verses 22 through 24. It says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of shore. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? <laughs> what shall we drink? They grumbled against Moses, and they said, What shall we drink? Listen. <laughs> so only a few days into their journey, the people of Israel began to grumble, complain, and whine, frustrated by the lack of water. Now, right before we jump in too hard on them, I have to admit that I feel for them. I really do. Right? I've always been a drinker of water, uh, of a lot of water ever since I was little. Right? In college, if you saw me on campus, I was that weird guy that was carrying a gallon jug of water with me everywhere I went. Right? Everywhere I go now, I carry a big old water bottle. So much so, I, I carry it with me all the time that I had to get like a special cup holder in my car because the normal cup holder wouldn't hold my water bottle. Uh, so I always have water with me. Another example of this is when I was in Liberia last month, I went on a little excursion to a remote village. I told some of you this story. It, it took us a long time to get there. We left like, I don't know, like the middle of the night, but they called it morning. It was, we had an argument about that. Six hours, right, through the jungle, and I quickly realized I did not bring enough water with me. I was hot, and I was thirsty, so what did I have to do after I did some whining to myself, right, in my head? I didn't whine to others. No, I did, right? <laughs> I whined to my buddy Moba. I said, Moba, we got to do something, and so what did we do? We found a kid who had a machete, and I told that kid, I was like, hey, climb that tree, bring me those coconuts. I'm going to drink those. That kid made a lot of money that day, right? <laughs> I said, you just stay with me, buddy. Right? Bring your machete. You got a job to do. Right? That, kid, that kid saw me coming. Right? So I know how important water is. I get the thirst. But don't miss this, church. Right? We can't miss this. Literally three days earlier, they were singing a song. They were singing a song, a smash hit about how God could control the water. That he could control the water of the ocean, but in three days they somehow forgot the power of God and how he had control over the water. And if we're honest, I think we all know what was true of the Israelites back then is often true of us today, Foundry Church. Man... I mean, just being honest, right? We want to believe that the testing of our faith will create a moment of spiritual victory. We, we want to believe that we will stand at the waters of the Red Sea and see God part them, and we're going to rejoice, and we're going to sing praises, and we're forever going to be changed. 
from the spiritual high. But for most of us, we're on the other side of those parted waters, complaining, whining, grumbling, because we don't have a cup of cold water in our hand right now that we can put to our lips. You see, the, the question becomes this. The question is whether we can still sing of God's glorious holiness and power even when we face moments of spiritual drought. Even when we're, we're so thirsty, we can't spit. Are we still going to sing praises to the God that we forge our life on? Right, the, the people of Israel probably got their hopes up about Marara. Right, the, the, they were at this place. They thought the, the drought was over. They thought they were going to have some water. They thought it was an oasis. And they likely believed that their problems were solved. But their hope was shattered to pieces when they got there. And they got to the well. And they discovered that the wells of Morar contained bitter, non-drinkable water. <laughs> Gut punch, right? <laughs> you start that restoration project. You're just going to build a simple deck. And then all of a sudden... You need a new roof. Right? Many, many wells are bittered in this area of the country, of this world. And they're unpleasant, but you can still drink them. Right? They're bitter because of the salts that are down there in the, in the water table. But this one was not simply unpleasant. It was dangerous to their health. They couldn't drink it. The Israelites responded the way we typically do when things don't go our way. They whined and they complained and they grumbled even more. They started to make demands of Moses, and they shouted, what are we going to drink? Now, just on a side note, isn't it funny how quickly a hero can become a scapegoat? <laughs> he was just a hero. Their grumbling and their whining was aimed at Moses, but only on the surface, because deep down it was actually directed at God, who appointed Moses as their leader. Right? Moses made this connection clear when Israel whined and grumbled later on again, about their lack of food. He said, when we heard these complaints and this whining, he said, who are we? He was dumbfounded. He's like, who are we? Your complaints are not against me and, and these leaders, but they're against the Lord, God, our God. And we know, sadly, God's people are described during this time in the wilderness as complaining over 12 times. Of being a people who complain and whine and grumble they were described as that type of person 12 times. In fact, the Israelites' whining was so prolific that it is even mentioned in the New Testament. The, the Apostle Paul used the crumbling nature of the Israelites to warn believers in the Corinthian church. He said that such believers who whine, right, whiners in the church, such believers along with, with people who are craving evil things, People who are giving in to idolatry, immorality, and were giving in to other evil things were all evil. Whining was, was scooped up into that, right? Whining is in the same category as worshiping idols. Now, Founder Church, we tend to treat grumbling and complaining and whining as minor issues, right? Hardly worthy of of mention since everyone does it but in the old testament and the new testament alike whining is taken very seriously why because of this right whining is an outward reflection of an inward forgetfulness i grasp that i right? understand what i'm saying here right does anyone remember the name of god that we learned last week jehovah 
Jireh. Jehovah Jireh. And what does Jireh mean? Provider. And so when we whine about something we don't have or we whine about something we think is unfair because we're comparing ourselves to someone else or we whine about being uncomfortable, what we are really saying is that we don't think God provided the right thing for us or that he won't provide the right thing for us in the future. He's not capable of it. When we whine, we forget all that God has already done for us to prove that his name is Jehovah Jireh. The God that provides. So the Israelites thirst caused them to forget the deliverance they had recently enjoyed by the power of the God that they had forged their life on. Their, their, Their physical thirst made them forget his deliverance through the Red Sea. Their whining showed their forgetfulness. Literally, like we said, three days ago, God moved the waters of the Red Sea to deliver them. Did they not think that he could move the waters of a well? To refresh them, to give them a drink, right? The, the contrast is just so striking between the faith they expressed in praise and in worship and in prayer after crossing the Red Sea and the lack of faith when they encountered a challenge, a minor challenge, just three days into their journey, right? The matter was one of perspective, right? Look, look, look at this question. Could they trust God to work in every circumstance based on his character? That's what they're being faced with. And before we get all high and mighty and we think we would never forget and whine about God, please know that it is possible to whine and to grumble inwardly, right? It just is without verbalizing it. Right? When we allow struggles and doubts to cause us to blame God for our circumstances, we are falling into the same pattern of behavior that the Israelites did in the wilderness. Now look, this is, this is tough teaching, all right? All right, protect your toes, because I'm going to step on them here for a second. All right, when we allow anxiety to rule over our lives, we are focusing on circumstances rather than God's provision. When we allow worry to overtake our thoughts, we are focusing on the sea rather than the sea maker. When we allow doubts to roll around in our minds, we are focusing on the desert rather than the spring of life. Our inward grumbling, Foundry Church, is just as forgetful as the outward whining of the Israelites. Now let me zoom back out here. This doesn't mean that we should have... And just push down the anxiety or push down the thoughts that are in our head. No, it means we deal with it. Right? It doesn't mean we just cover it up. It means we deal with it. Right? We don't just whine about it. We do something with it. We step up to the table with fellow believers. We pray about it. We, we get help from from Christian counselors, uh, from our brothers and sisters in arms, right? The, the kingdom of God. We do something. So let's keep peeling this onion and look at the rest of the story to see what we should do to be restored from our forgetfulness. Look at verses 25 and 26 of chapter 15. It says, And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. Now some of your translations might say a tree. And showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a, a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. 
saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord. What does it say? Your healer. I am the Lord, your healer. Right? God once again provided for the Israelites. He proved that he was Jehovah Jireh again for the Israelites in a miraculous way by showing that he is not only powerful to, to deliver his people on a slavery and through the ocean, through the sea, but he will sustain them. God provided a log. <laughs> and now some of your translations, like I said, uh, it was a tree in the desert to purify the water. And as I was working through this, this story, in my research this week, I found this amazing thing out. In his book, On the Exodus Journey, A Way Through the Wilderness, Jamie Buckingham explains the scientific significance of the log. Right? And I always thought, oh, just, I always thought, oh, just a piece of wood that kind of, you know, acted like charcoal or like a filter of some sort. But, but he, he goes a little deeper into the science of it. So the, the chemicals in the sap of that broken limb, and it goes into the type of trees that were in that area, um, and so the broken limb of the tree drew the mineral content of the bitter water down to the bottom of the pool, to the bottom of the well. And so the water that was left at the top of the well, where they could pull their water from, was good water. And then he even, even though the waters were now drinkable, there was still a significant um, source and amount of magnesium and calcium content in the water. And he digs into this, but, but, but he says that's okay that there's this magnesium and calcium that's left in the water because it combined together with the water was actually like a laxative. And it would clean out the digestive systems of the people of Israel. We're thinking, okay, TMI. <laughs> right? <laughs> Why should we care? Right? The log would, would literally have created water that would cleanse the Israelites of common Egyptian ailments such as dysentery, and we know from other historians during this time that there was a disease that was prevalent. Because you got to remember, where the Israelites were, there was a city. There was a lot of people in a confined area. There was dysentery. And there was also this thing called, um, I'm going to say this wrong. I'm not a doctor. Bilhazia. All right. All right. Everyone's looking at me. I'm looking at the, the, the gastroenterologist here. But, uh, all right. It's a weakening disease common among the Egyptians, even still today, right? So in addition, calcium and magnesium together form the basis of a drug called um, dolomite, right? So when all this is combined, it it's still used by some athletes today as a performance-enhancing drug in hot weather conditions. So at this city, or at this well in Marara, God provided the right medicine to both clean out their system, right, from these diseases, and to prepare them for the long haul, right, the hot march through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. All right, so think about that, right? God did not just provide water. He provided the right water, right? Water that was going to act as a medicine, but also as a sustainer, a drug of some sort to help them through the desert, through the wilderness. Water that would give them the things they need to survive in the desert, and to survive the pain and the diseases that they were inflicted with for being slaves and confined in such a tight, cramped city area for so long. 
And then God takes it one step further with the ordinance he made with his people, the statute that he made. This ordinance contained a condition. He said, if you will carefully obey, which was followed by a promise, I will not inflict. Now, the Old Testament contains numerous examples of these if and then uh, covenants. We, we see this all over. They, they demonstrate that God's blessings in, this, in these manners flow through the obedience of his children, of those of us who say we forge a life on him. Now, now in this case, in this story, God's promise was related specifically to the illnesses that he had earlier inflicted on the Egyptians. Right, I know this is a lot. Keep tracking with me. He's saying, see my people, I have brought you here to this place with this water, and it will heal your thirst, and it will get rid of these illnesses that were so prevalent in Egypt. I just need you to what? Obey me. Right? One commentator put it like this. He said, we, we can say that God was not only interested in getting the children of Israel out of Egypt, he also wanted to get Egypt out of the children of Israel, both physically and spiritually. <laughs> so if Israel would carefully obey the Lord, they would drink from the water God provided, and it would not be bitter. It would fix their thirst and would remove all the toxins of their former life. Why? Right? Because he's the Lord who, what did we say? Heals. Right? Now that is the name Jehovah Rapha. Right? So our God, Rapha, healer, the one who provides a cure. Uh, physically, the translation is the one who stitches us back to whole, right? Who makes us whole again. God was going to restore his people to new with this water, to restore them with water that would take away disease and water that would take away thirst and water that would remind them that God is also Jehovah Rapha, not just Jehovah Jireh, not just the great I am, but he's the cure. He's the healer. He's the one who stitches us together because Jehovah Rapha heals body and mind. Whatever is going on in our lives at any time, and we, we feel like we're, we're falling to pieces and, and just destruction and chaos and whatever, Jehovah Rapha can stitch us back together again from the inside out and restore us like new again. Under church, Jehovah Rapha revealed himself to be the only true source of true wholeness. The only way that we can cure ourselves. Look at it like this, Jehovah Rapha alone has the power to change the bitter experiences of life into something sweet. Water that refreshes. I was teasing the kids downstairs. It's like God's turning their water into that prime drink that they carry around. Because <laughs> they all carry it downstairs. <laughs> he alone has the authority to heal us from the inside out. He alone has the wisdom to not just give us what we want, but to give us what we need to wholly heal. Guys, and I'm saying this as a person who says, I got this. I can do it myself. All right? I, I got this. God, I believe in you. You're the great I am. But I can heal myself. But he's the only way. Because that's who he is. It's not that he's just trying to control it he is the cure 
It's who he is at the core of his being. He's Jehovah Rapha. Man, water that would give them the things they need to survive, both spiritually and physically. And then God takes it, like we said, that one step further. Man, he, he gives them that ordinance, right? He alone has the wisdom to not just give us what we want, but to give us what we need to wholly heal. God mercifully sustains the people at this well, but there is more to the story. Just real quick, the last, the last verse, verse 27 says, They came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water, plenty of water, and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Man, some translations say dates. There's a place of refreshing. Right? God leads them from Mara to this bitter water that he has to turn sweet and to all this thing. And then to Elam, a place of rest. After their covenant, God takes them away from the waters of Mara to the, the, the bitter waters. But they still, uh, to the, the still waters that they need, that they kind of long for, that they wanted. And he moves them to an area with these 12 springs, these 70 date palms where they're located. And they camped by this water. They, they got restored by this water. Right, the, the numbers 7 and 12 are multiple, and multiples of those numbers appear throughout Scripture, representing uh, completeness. And, and so this location, Elam, was a place of completeness. The, the place, uh, was a, this place was a place of refuge for the Israelites that pointed to the abundance uh, of God. All right? A lot of times when we hear messages or we read commentaries on this section of Scripture, it's just... We just, everyone's quick to point out how this was the miracle. He, they, they had these, this water, yeah, it helped them, but they, they got to this place like this oasis in the desert, but we don't want to miss this, right? Where did the people of Israel learn the name of God to be Jehovah Rapha? In Elam or in Marah? Marah. Yes, God takes us from the desert into an oasis. And yes, God is abundant in his provision. Right? He eventually got them to this nice oasis where they could kick up their feet, have a, a, a cocktail, smoke a cigar, sit underneath some palm trees. Right? He took them there. But notice that it took the bitter waters of Mara first to reveal the name of Jehovah Rapha. Are you, are you tracking? Right? It took the walking through the desert and the bitter waters of this well in the log of a tree for the people of God to be healed by Jehovah Rapha. Yes, Mara was the place of whining and bitterness and testing, but it was also a place of whole healing and obedience and of knowing the fullness of God's character deeper. So he got the cure, they got the healing, and then they go to Elam. Founded Church, we should never overlook the importance and the way that Jehovah Rapha heals. Sometimes for our own good, we have to go through some pain. We have to experience some drought. We have to find bitter waters that God turns into medicine. Sometimes it takes pain to fully heal us. Just look at the way that God heals us through Jesus, our Lord, right? 1 Peter chapter 2 says this. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. <laughs> so that, that he, having died to sin, we might live for righteousness. And so, what does it say? By his wounds, we have been healed. God promises healing for our deepest pain, our disappointment, our past, and our sins through the wounds of Jesus. 
He can take our brokenness and bring about restoration, but it takes the stripes of a whip on the back of our Savior. He can turn our bitterness into a sweet refreshment, but it takes the wounds of our Savior, Jesus. Our ultimate healing foundry, church, our full restoration can only come from the wounds of Jesus. It's the well of Mara before we get to the paradise of heaven. And know this, that is not just that, that Jesus bore grief or that he was pierced and crushed and wounded. It is that he, he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows with him on the cross. That he was pierced for our transgressions, ours today even, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed wholly, fully, and truly. Founded church. So we got to thank God for Jehovah Rapha, right? If you've been sidetracked at Mara, bitter in your soul and in your spirit, feeling like you're falling apart and you can't put yourself back together, well, know this. The only way to travel from Mara to Elam is to turn to Jehovah Rapha to find healing in his wounds, to drink the water he provided that we need, the living water. Jesus, our Jehovah Rapha. Our God who heals. So now let's live this out as the band comes back up here. Because information, right? This is all good to know, right? We could write in our Bibles there in, in Exodus where it says God is, is healer. We could write Jehovah Rapha and that would be really cool. And we can remember that he's the God who heals. But information it, without some sort of transformation is just stupid, Right? And if we, don't, if we don't take it from here, and we don't use it, and we don't share it, then we're wasting our time. So how should we respond when we find ourselves drinking from the bitter wells? Well, let me, let me challenge you to take three steps quickly, right? First, you've got to listen. Right? Listen earnestly to the voice of God. What is he trying to teach you in your current or in your, your present circumstances? What is he trying to show you while you are in the, this bitter well? Right? Have you learned, what have you learned about God from the events that you are in? Because there is something you can only learn while you are at that bitter well. Right? So listen to him. Take note of it. Change your perspective by seeing what God is doing on your behalf so he can bring you to the oasis of his healing. And then we got to obey, just like he instructed the Israelites. Look, to see if there are areas of disobedience in your life takes, takes a good hard look. And that's what his, his word is. It's a canon. You know, we might have heard the Bible described as a canon, right, when all these guys in ivory towers put together stuff and there's all these conventions back in the day they said we are we're the canon the canon means a measuring stick <laughs> that's all it is it's the measuring stick it helps us it helps us figure out helps us obey it's a measuring stick right? it lets us see where there's disobedience in our life and we got to repent and turn away from that disobedient actions and attitudes to turn to the one who desires to heal us listen obedience flows from an accurate understanding of god's character so we got to know, is he Jehovah Rapha? And even more than that, do we believe that he is Jehovah Rapha? Right? Do you believe that this thing that you're holding inside of you, that thing that you are ashamed of, the pain that you don't want to talk about, 
that thing that makes you miss the mark, the thing that's just distracting you and holding you down and feels like chains around you, do you believe that Jehovah Rapha can heal that in you, that can take that off of you, can restore you? Do you believe that his wounds for you on the cross were enough? And if you do, are you willing to obey? And then the final step is encourage. Listen, encourage someone you know who's drinking from bitter waters to look to Jehovah Rapha. Point them to Jesus. Point them to the God that we are forging our life on who offers healing, hope, and abundance. Rub shoulders with them like we've been talking about. Right? You may not feel restored right now or whole or healed, but the Bible assures us and each and every one of us that we've been created in God's image. If you want to move away from a place of bitterness, turn to Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. Listen to him. Listen to what he's trying to teach you. Obey and encourage each other. Encourage those who are far from him, who don't know that he can heal them. That's our job. Let's stand and let's worship together.